0: Okay, so um as you've guessed we're looking at peter's second letter, and today we're we're going to look at just two verses from that passage that was read to us we're going to look at verses three and four and we're going to we're doing we're taking it slowly for a reason number one it's dense uh, there's lots of theology there, but there's another reason, and particularly with these two verses, and that is that this letter is i mean if you yeah, if you've done any background reading on it, if you've been around a bit, you, you will know that this letter is one of the most controversial in the whole of the New Testament. In fact, in the whole of the Bible. I mean, should it even be in the Bible? You know, We say, and it's written probably in your Bible, it's called Peter's Second Letter. But is it Peter's Second Letter? I mean, did Peter actually write this? And a whole load of theologians would say, no, he did not. And one reason they give is what he says and the words he uses to say it, not least in these two verses that we're going to look at uh, this morning. Words like, verse 3, divine power or godliness. Or, verse 4, divine nature and partaking in it. Or escaping from the corruption that is in the world. And we might read those words, hear those words, as we have already, and think, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that those were words and terms that the rest of the New Testament rarely, if ever, uses. It's almost as if they're avoiding using them. Whereas Greek philosophy and pagan Roman religion used these terms a whole load and used them to say things that no Jewish person or early Christian, let alone an apostle like Peter, would ever say. And so the argument goes, well, this cannot be Peter then. This, somebody else must have written this, somebody who has grown up in Greek culture, somebody whose faith is compromised By pagan philosophy. Okay, now we're going to see in a um, few moments what these words and terms meant back then. I would just say who says? I mean, who says that Peter shouldn't write like this? I mean, when I was a junior doctor training in pediatrics, we were, you know, one of the things you get trained in pediatrics is how do you speak to children? And one of the first rules is you get down to their level. You speak to them face to face. Don't tower over them like you're some scary giant. Get physically, bend down, look them in the face, face. and if you're if you're going to say some, if you're going to explain something to them, use language that they will understand. Or think about the difference between rugby and American football. I mean, rugby is a game played by men. Whereas American football is a game played by people wearing sticky tights with lots of padding and helmets so that they don't get hurt. Okay, now imagine that I were to, Sue and I, imagine that Sue and I were to move to America, okay, and I became a pastor of an American church. How well do you, well you think I'd get on? <laughs> I mean, talk of rugby would have to go, wouldn't it? And in its place, I would have to, I've been learning about this, I would have to talk about quarterbacks, and touchdowns, and offense, and defense, and grid irons, and yardage. Okay, I would have to learn a whole new vocabulary. Why? Because I'd want to be understood. I'd want to, I'd want to be able to communicate in ways that the people listening said, oh yeah, I get that. Okay, so if Peter is writing to people who are coming to faith out of a pagan culture, coming to faith out of a culture where they are swimming in you know, pagan Greek philosophy and Roman religions, and if he genuinely cared about them and he wants them to understand, wouldn't you expect him to bend down? Wouldn't, wouldn't you expect him to do precisely this and to use language that they understand, the words that they are using, but to use those words and terms in a way that then pointed to Christ, which is exactly what Peter does. And he doesn't just do it for them. You see, it is possible that you are here this morning and you are 100% happy with your life you would change nothing about it. It is also possible that that is not true for you. That as you look at your character or at your circumstances, things are not as you want them to be. But where do you find the power to change? Where where, where do you find the power to change your character, maybe especially if you've already tried? Where do you find the power to get free from some of the stuff that's binding you? dragging you down or, or where do you find the power to cope with life when your circumstances are not changing well in these two verses peter tells us but he, as he does he talks about becoming godlike again okay, you might hear that and think well i would i would be interested in change but i don't have any ambitions to become a god I would ask you is that really the case is that true okay we're going to look at three things the change we desire the problem with desire and the answer to desire okay, firstly the change we desire here okay, look at verse four through them that's as we'll see through the promises of god you may become partakers of the divine nature and in their culture, that is a loaded term. Depending on which pagan philosophy you read or which pagan religion you followed, your great hope was to die and be absorbed into the divine or to become like one of the gods, or even, if you, or to, even to, become like a, to become a god if you were a Caesar, to be worshiped as a god. And to us, that kind of talk seems utterly alien, but is it? I mean, have you ever walked around your neighborhood, you know, maybe maybe Lausanne, looked up on people's balconies, have you ever taken a hike to a mountain refuge and seen prayer flags fluttering in the wind? And as Christianity has declined in the West, interestingly, Buddhism has increased. But what is the end point of Buddhism? It's the loss of self in the ultimate. It's the loss of self in the divine. OK, but you don't have to believe or embrace Buddhism to think like that. As we saw last week, you know, maybe you're not yet a Christian, and you know, your view of God is, you know, I think of God as sort of the universal consciousness. And that when you die, you become a part of that universal consciousness. You partake in the divine nature. okay? But again, you don't have to buy into any of that sort of religious stuff to want to be godlike or to, or to want a to share of the divine nature. I mean, just look at the, you know, the latest Marvel superhero movie. Well, think about Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. We are captivated by characters with godlike powers. Well, think about those who engage in extreme sports and this desire to get into the flow zone, you know, to, to feel like time stands still. It's as if you step out of time, becoming eternal. Well, that desire to defy death, people who have a seeming invincibility about them, who you know, we even talk about they achieve a godlike status... Or, you know, each year I teach a course at the Bible School in Geneva to the final-year students. They're just on the verge of becoming pastors. And one of the things I tell them is, you are not the Messiah, but they want to be. You are not the Messiah. When when the religious leaders come to uh, John the Baptist, they ask him, who are you? And what's his response? I am not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. But we want to be, we try to be, and not just pastors. I mean, think about some of the characteristics of God. He's omniscient, he knows everything. He's omnipotent, he can do everything. Fix every problem. And he's omnipresent, he is everywhere. Ask yourself, have there ever been times when you wish or try to live as if one of those is true for you? Do you ever beat yourself up or get anxious because you don't have all the answers? You don't know what to do in this situation. You don't don't know how to help your friend with the questions or the problems they have, and you feel bad about it, you beat yourself up. Or do you ever fake it and you pretend you do know, and you pretend you know more than you know? I mean, what is that but the desire to be omniscient or the pretense that our knowledge is not limited? Or as I say, do people's problems, or maybe those of society or the world, do they weigh heavy on you? And you see all of the needs out there, and it just just drags you down. And you feel impotent, paralysed to do anything about it. Or you get angry with yourself or with others at their inaction. Why? Because we want to fix all the problems. But only omnipotence can do that. Or do you find yourself, and I suspect this is true for most of us in this room, do you find yourself living life in overdrive? And you're running around trying to be everywhere at the same time trying to be at every meeting or every social activity you don't want to miss out on anything but your stress levels are rising and the fear of missing out FOMO is growing what's behind that the desire to be omnipresent but we're not only God is So sure, we may not think in terms of being absorbed into the divine nature like a Greek philosopher or becoming a god like a Caesar. But the desire to be godlike is real. And that is without even considering what the praise of others can do to us or the craving that we might have for that praise and how we feel when other people get it but I don't. Do we want to be gods? No. Do we want to be worshipped and adored? Yes. And Peter is taking that desire then and now and saying, guys, I want to show you a better way. And it is not you being absorbed into the ultimate or you having superhuman powers. It is that you can become increasingly like God in your character. You see, to partake is to to partake in the divine nature, to partake is to share in something with someone else. And so to share in God's nature is not that we become God-like superheroes. It, it, It is that as his children, as members of his family, we grow in his family likeness, that we become more loving, we become more patient, We become more courageous we become more full of joy and full of peace that we grow in wisdom but rather than that going to our heads we also grow in humility that day by day we are growing to be more like Christ until that last day when his work in our lives is complete and I suspect that many of us would say that is the change that I want to see I see this stuff in my life. I want to grow more like that. I want to be less anxious. I want to get less angry with others. I want to be more loving. I want to be more kind. I want to be free of these things that control me. I don't want to be a Greek God, but I would very much like to be more like God in his character. And Peter says here, you can, but, but. You see, the problem is that while this desire to change and to be more like God is good and right, what the Bible tells us, it's, it's also that desire that is at the root of all of our problems. Second point, then, the problem with desire. The change we desire, the problem with the desire. Okay, so the desire to be omniscient, omnipotent or omnipresent can lead to anxiety, burnout despair. The desire for praise or being on the receiving end of it can destroy us. The desire to feel truly alive, to feel immortal, can lead to behaviours and risk-taking that rather than give us life, threaten it. You see, whenever we forget that we are creatures and that he's the creator and we're not, when we forget that, Things get screwy. Okay, but the Bible says there is there's an even darker side to it. Here, okay, look again at verse 4. That through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. And to the guys that Peter is writing to, who are swimming in a culture of Greek philosophy. Okay, the corruption of the world was the physicality, the materiality of the world. It was your physical body it was eating and drinking. It was work and play. It was sex and relationships. It's all corrupt. This, this physical world, our physical bodies, it's all corrupt and it's all corrupting. And to be totally free, to partake of the divine nature, you had to escape your physical body at death and leave it all behind. And Peter is saying, sure, sure there is a corruption in the world, but you are pointing the finger at the wrong thing. Verse four again, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The problem is not your physical body, Peter is saying. The problem is our hearts. It's our desires. It's what we want and how much we want it. It's that that has this corroding, corrupting effect on our lives. If you go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, it tells us what that first sinful desire was. And what was it? The desire to be godlike. The serpent comes to Eve in the garden and says of eating the fruit of the tree, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then Genesis tells us, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And so the Bible says that at the root of all of our problems, the origin of sin, the original sin, is this desire to be like God. Not to show more of his character, which is what we are called and created to do as his image bearers, but to take his place. Okay, now maybe you're here and um, you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you'd even say, you know, maybe you'd even call yourself a your, your secular person. I bet you still have a moral code, don't you? you know, we, we, we all do. And you feel bad if you break it. But what if somebody else breaks it? Okay, what if somebody else says something or does something that you think is wrong? Or they don't do something that you think that they should do. What do you do? Did you find yourself judging them, criticising them? I mean, just take a look at our social media feeding frenzies that go on and the demands for apologies when someone steps out of line when they when they break the secular moral code secular culture is highly moralistic and judgmental isn't it why because you or secular culture as a whole have become the lawmaker you've become the judge you are deciding for yourself what is right and wrong in other words we can do exactly what the serpent offers eve here and take the place of god as lawmaker and judge okay but this is not just a problem for the secular person unless we think i'm just banging on at them think about the religious person and you know this this could be could be you Okay, how how does the religious person try to escape the corruption of the world? Well, if they take the Eastern path, like Buddhism, by meditating, emptying yourself of all desire. Or if you've grown up in the West, maybe in a legalistic form of Christianity, you try and do it by obeying all the rules and living a highly moral life. Okay, but if the non-religious person has taken... if the secular person has taken God's place as lawmaker and judge, The religious person has taken his place as saviour and redeemer. I can save myself by meditating, by emptying myself of all desire, by obeying all the rules, by being highly moral and religious. I can save myself. I can earn God's favour if I live right. So we can want to see change in our lives We can want to grow in peace and patience and love and joy and kindness and courage, but if we try and do that by deciding for ourselves what those things look like, like our current culture is doing with love, we try and become our own lawmaker and judge, or if we think we can achieve them in our own strength, be our own saviour, then it is not more of God's character we want, It's his throne, which is why Peter talks of Christ's power and Christ's promises. Last point then, the answer to desire. The change we desire and the answer to that desire. Look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, have you ever been in a situation at work where you have been asked to do something and you have not been given the resources you need to do it? How does that make you feel? Frustrated? Hey, come on, you've asked me to do this, but you've given me no means to do it. And if we're honest, sometimes life can feel like that. You know what's required. You know the kind of change you want to see in your life but you feel powerless. And Peter is saying, yeah, while we may not have everything that we want, God has already given us everything that we need and it is his power. And Peter says he's left nothing out. He has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Nothing's been left out. Which means that the Christian life is not like Sue and me going on holiday. There we are, we're sort of driving down the motorway, we're about an hour into the journey and almost every time one of us will turn to the other one and go, bother, guess what I forgot to pack? And the list begins, doesn't it? And you go, oh yeah, what did I, yeah, do you know, I realise I forgot that as well. And Peter is saying, God has no such list. God doesn't have a list like that. He has left nothing out that you, he forgets nothing that we need. Now, when I was at school, when I was at uh, primary secondary school, it was probably, I think it was probably one of those times when the trendy educationalists had got hold of the schools. Okay, I hope there are no trendy educationalists in the room. Okay, and grammar was considered passe. Okay, so I, seriously, I cannot tell my adverbs from my adjectives let alone distinguish complicated verb tenses. But the books say that when Peter writes his divine power has granted to us all things, it is the perfect tense, which means this is something that God has done for you, but the good of that keeps on going up until today. So it is not future or conditional it is not, do you know what? If you try really hard, if you pray hard enough, if you study enough, or you know, if, if you get serious enough, or if you seek that special experience with passion enough, at some point down the line, God might just give you what you need. It's not future and it's not conditional. Nor is it a bog-standard past tense, like God has given you what you need, but don't come back for more, because that's all you've got, so don't use it up all in one go. It is perfect. He has given you everything you need, and that supply is as good today as it was when he first gave it. So how do you access that power for change? Verse three, through the knowledge of him, who called us to his own glory and excellence. So does knowledge mean that if I want to grow, be growing in love and joy? If I want to be free of the stuff that's dragging me down, if this is about knowledge, does that mean I have to hit the books? Does that mean I have to subscribe to Audible, listen to more audio books? Does it mean I need to listen to more podcasts, grow in knowledge? And the is no reading more books and listening to good stuff is good things to do it is that when christ first calls you to come to him he leads you then and from then on into a growing personal intimate knowledge of him and that knowledge begins with god showing you christ's glory and excellence peter says As John writes at the beginning of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when God shows you at conversion, and from then on Christ's glories and excellencies, he shows you how in Christ becoming a man he took on our human nature so that we might be partakers of his divine nature that he bent down to us so that we might be lifted up to him that he lived a perfect life of godliness and that as we trust in him and not in our rule keeping that life is counted to us And our ungodliness, our rule breaking, is counted to him. See, Moses wanted to see God's glory, and so he asks him to see his glory. And in answer, God passes before him and proclaims his name before him. It's God saying, this is my glory. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And you're left thinking, hey, come on, that's contradictory. How can you both forgive the guilty and punish them how can you be both a god of mercy and a god of justice and yet here is god saying to moses moses that is exactly who i am that is my glory and so that question becomes the great unanswered question running through the whole old testament how can he be the god of mercy and in just and justice and it is unanswered until Christ comes and John and Peter say he's the glory of God it's in him that God's justice and mercy are reconciled because it's in him at the cross as the innocent one steps into our place and bears our punishment that we the guilty get to go free. And it's as the glory and the excellencies of Christ begin to break on your heart like waves upon a beach. It is as the love of Christ for you first dawns on you and you see his glory and his excellence. It's as your heart knowledge of that grows in depth of understanding that your desire to live as he wants you to live grows. As you increasingly see the beauty of Jesus' character, you want your character to become more like him. As you understand how he humbled himself for you, it humbles you. As you know his compassion towards you when you didn't deserve it, you will become more compassionate to others who don't deserve it. As you understand how he is for you, regardless of what others may say about you, your courage will grow, because you know he's for you. Because it is through the knowledge of the glory and the excellencies of Christ that his divine power is released in your life. But not just his power, verse four. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's interesting, isn't it? Peter doesn't tell us what those promises are. He tells us their impact, that through them, we might become partakers of the divine nature. we can guess what kind of promises he's thinking of. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised that the day would come when he would write his law on his people's hearts, the day would come when God's people would want to obey him from the heart. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God promised that the day would come when he would give his people new hearts and put his spirit within them. So it's no wonder that Peter, who knows those promises, stands up on the day of Pentecost after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and says this Jesus being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father what the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing so if you were to take the Bible and go through it and make a list of all of God's precious and very great promises. Promises to crush the serpent's head through the seed of Eve. Promises to bless all nations through the seed of Abraham. Promises that a king is gonna come from the line of David and his kingdom is gonna last forever. Promises like there is going to be a sin-bearing servant by whose wounds we are healed. If you make a list of all those promises, you will have to include on that list the promises of a changed heart, of his spirit living within us, promises that we can partake of the divine nature. And Peter is saying, and God has kept those promises in Christ. And his work of change in your life begins when you first see Christ at conversion, but it continues throughout your life as you behold his glory. As Paul writes, Now we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's ironic, isn't it? If we try and become like God in our own strength, we'll become anxious, exhausted, or frustrated. If we try and take God's place, be our own lawmaker or savior, we'll become judgmental and critical of others, we'll behave like a demigod. But if we come to Christ and spend our lives beholding his glories and his excellencies and trust in his promises, we will see the kind of change we want as our characters become more like his, until the day when he brings it all to an end and we will see him as he really is. Let's pray.